I'm going to ask you to be seated. I want to introduce David a little more fully and then pray for him. Come on out here, David. Well, as I mentioned uh, in the call to worship, um, David is a friend of mine. He's the rector of a church up in Baltimore, Maryland, Church of the Resurrection. And um, he is having similar things happen in, in his church that we are having here. People walk in, they experience the Holy Spirit, and it is a humbling thing uh, to be part of that. And a network is being formed in our Anglican movement among rectors that are sincerely trying to figure out how do we push forward the mission of God in this sort of post-Christian American culture? David is a friend. I've learned a ton from him. And so I asked him to come down here and take a look at our church and preach to us. And, you know, he'll tell you that he's come to learn from us. Yeah. Uh, but it's really mutual. And <laughs> we've been part of a leadership thing now for the better part of a decade. And yeah. it's really, it's been too long. I'm glad you're finally here. So I want to pray for him as he opens God's word to us. And then uh, also that the Lord would open our hearts to receive the Lord. Lord, thank you for my friend David. I thank you for the gifts you've given him and his humility. I thank you for the way that you are blessing his church and this church. Lord, would you anoint his message now that we would not just hear him, but that we would hear you through him. Lord, open our hearts to receive your truth. Come Holy Spirit, for we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's good to have you. Thank you. Mike is being humble. What he didn't tell you was I had him come up to resurrection and meet with our vestry, our staff, and our lay leaders to try and get us to help us get clarity on who we are and where we're going. And it was an amazing visit. Uh, I think half my church wants to hire your rector to come be our rector. What a gift Mike is, and it's been such an encouragement. Just so you know, he's having an impact, and your church is having an impact across North America uh, through his ministry and your ministry here. It's just such a privilege, and I have come to learn. I met with uh, members of the staff last night, and I just kept asking them questions about how you're all doing things. So it is a tremendous privilege to be here uh, with you all this morning. Thank you, Mike. Well, you're in a series looking at the greatness of God. And I have the uh, humble task of, of trying to convey to you this morning that it is a gift to fear the great God. It is a gift to fear God. I want to show you how God is like a great goldsmith who burns away the dross of his people so his people learn how to reflect on the outside of their lives, in the public view of their lives, what he is doing and longs to do on the inside of our lives. Our text today comes from Acts chapter 5. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see a pattern. God blesses his people, encourages them, and then does not shield them from hardship and from challenges. As they learn to navigate and trust and rely on him in the challenges, then he continues to grow them and bring them. And this is a, a, a kind of a cycle that we see in our own lives. If you've been walking with Christ for a long time, you'll know there are seasons in the Christian life. Seasons of blessing and then a challenge. And, and as we gather and pray and and, and read his word and be with the body of Christ, we face those challenges and move through them. That's the hope of the gospel. Many of you have experienced it. Well, today in Acts chapter 5, we see a challenge that's coming from inside the church. Let me give you some background. During Pentecost, people from all over the world came to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and they come to know Christ. A revival breaks out, and they say to themselves, we're not leaving. We're going to stay right here. The church of 125 now has to serve a church of 3,000. And so like any good church, what do they do? They launch a capital campaign. <laughs> hey, all you wealthy people, will you sell some of your buildings and, and, and businesses? And we got to support all these people who are just hanging out. 
So the end of chapter 4, we see them running this capital campaign. Chapter 5, the capital campaign continues. Of course, there's a great couple in the church. Everyone knows them, Ananias and Sapphira. They decide that they too will sell a field. Just by way of illustration, let's say they sold their, their field for a million dollars. They decide to give $600,000 to the church. That's a big amount of money to feed the poor. Well, it seems if you get the context from Acts chapter 5, that they're offering their gift, Ananias is offering his gift in the context of a worship service. And there's Peter and James and John and the folks, and they're coming forward. And Ananias seems to say, we too sold a field, and we're giving all the proceeds to the church. At this point, Peter gets a leading of the Holy Spirit. Ananias is lying. He's not giving all the proceeds to the church. He's only giving 600,000 to the church. Luke uses the word in verse 3, keeping back. It actually means pilfer or embezzle. A wrong use of the money misrepresenting himself and his wife to the whole church. Can't you imagine though? You know capital campaigns. You need those million dollar, $600,000 gifts. And you come forward, everyone oohs and ahs in hopes that the wealthy give a big gift. The amazing part of this story is that Peter will stop the worship service and says, I just got a leading, Ananias, that you're lying to everybody. You're misrepresenting yourself. I got to tell you, I wouldn't do it. $600,000 gift comes into my church. Thank you so much. We'll deal with you privately off to the side if God wants to deal with you. Thank God for Peter. He's a much better leader than I am. He obeys the leading. He doesn't have a heart. He says in verse 4, Ananias, what made you contrive this in your heart? What in the world? The money was all yours. You were under no obligation. God doesn't care how much you give. Why are you lying? And what's the answer? Like so many of us, Ananias wanted people to think that he was more spiritual than he really was. He wanted people to think that he was actually more committed and more godlike on the inside than he actually was. What's the first pastoral problem of this text? Very simple. It's called hypocrisy. Greek word for hypocrisy is actually word actor, where we get the word actor or actress. Play acting. You don't want to know what the great God of the Old Testament hated about the people of God in the Hebrew Scriptures? Inauthentic, hypocritical, go through the motions, outward religious action and worship without sincere and honest hearts. And you know what we learn in Acts chapter 5? God still hates inauthentic, hypocritical, go through the motions, outward religious lives without sincere and honest hearts. Hypocrisy is simple. It's looking one way on the outside, but really being another on the inside. You know what Ananias', Ananias name means? The Lord is gracious. Of course, Sapphira's name, we get the word sapphire from it, means beautiful jewel. And as one theologian said, hypocrisy is neither gracious nor beautiful. It literally sucks the power out of a church. Sucks God's power out of life. 
It corrupts the unity of the church. It devastates the testimony of the church. And it confuses a lost world trying to figure out whether or not God really loves and cares for them. Hypocrisy is a huge problem in life, but even more so in the church. And of course, you know, it's not just God who hates hypocrisy. We do too. High school kids can, can spot it a mile away in their parents. Oh, I see you at church, parents, but look the way you are at home. You can spot it in clergy. People can spot it in your workplace. Oh, I thought you were a leader in that church over there at Grace Anglican. But look how he treats people. Look how she treats people. I think the number one turnoff to the gospel is not the message, but it's the hypocrisy of leaders like me. People perhaps like you. God loves sincere questioners. He loves people who are honest and say, you know, I'm broken. I don't have it all together. God clearly loves small financial gifts when they're given with hearts that are honest and sincere. But you start play acting in church, you start play acting your faith, and like a lion defending her cubs, the gloves, comes off, gloves come off and God will defend his church. So this morning, let me ask you, are you play acting? Are you play acting in your faith? Our opening prayer, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Are you living with secrets? I gotta admit, I started looking at this text, I didn't want to preach this message because I think, Lord, I'm a hypocrite all the time. The pressure as a pastor to have it all together, to have kids that have it all together. We're on display to exaggerate, to appear more spiritual than we are. I got to tell you, sometimes I make Ananias and Sapphira look pretty good. You see, who we are when no one is looking matters. You know it and I know it. And right at the birth of the church, God says, look, I'm a great God. You're, you're dealing with God here. I'm not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis says. And if you start to begin to play church, I'm going to nip it in the bud. The hammer's going to come down. You'll lose power. You'll have inauthentic faith. Your witness will be shot. And ultimately, you'll lose what you really need the most. Which leads to our second pastoral problem. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die right then, right? I mean, I've just confessed to you that I'm not kidding or just being falsely humble. I have hypocrisy throughout my life, a lot of the time. Look at Peter. Denied Christ three times, the ultimate hypocrite. And he didn't get struck down. I haven't yet been struck down. What's going on here? Well, we know from Scripture... From Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. That at any moment, God is perfectly justified to take any one of us home. When we compare ourselves to everybody else, we might look pretty good. But before a holy God, we don't stand a chance. At any time, God could wipe us off the face of the earth, be perfectly justified, and say, I'm sorry, you're done. You deserve death. The good news is, most of the time, God waits, and he woos us. Look at Sapphira. She gets a question. Sapphira, this is your time to come clean. Grace is wait, waiting at the door. God is willing to forgive you. 
And this is the great gospel. Christ was struck down on the cross. He takes the penalty for our hypocrisy. God holds back his judgment with the hopes that we might come clean, throw the white flag and say, I don't want to live a double life. I don't care if everybody knows I'm not who I said I am. Or if anybody, everybody knows that I'm not a man of my word or I have secret lusts or a secret uh, life. I just want to come clean. Lord, I want to run to you now and be forgiven before judgment comes down. I'm so afraid of the consequences or at any time you could exercise your right as God to end my life right now and you'd be fully justified. I want to come running now and say, Lord, have mercy. I don't want my secret sins being exposed to the whole church like Ananias and Sapphira. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Lord, have mercy. However, sometimes when God waits, we learn that not all sin has the same consequences. Let me give you an illustration. While not all of us face death, sometimes the consequences of sin are a lot higher than we can imagine. In our church a few years ago, uh, it came to my attention that one of our ushers was taking money out of the plate on the way to where they count it. You know, 40, 50, 60 bucks. You know what my reaction was? I wanted to run up to him and say, hey, listen, how can we serve you? Do you need more? This isn't the appropriate place, but I'm happy to give you 100 bucks, 500 bucks. Is your family in need? It's wrong to, it's wrong to steal. But clearly there's some secret. There's a sin beneath the sin. You know what I'm saying? Listen, if you caught Mike or you caught me stealing money out of the plate, we'd be done. Same sin, but you say, look, we can't have leaders who are stealing money. Same is true with adultery. Last time I checked, you can hold public office, be a famous athlete, a celebrity, or a CEO of a Fortune 100 company, and keep your job at having an affair. But as many of you know, when we fall into that sin, if we were to ever fall into that sin, I'm sorry, the hammer comes down. Same sin, but here's the principle. The closer you are to come to God, the more spiritual authority you have in the church, the more God brings justice and says, I can't do it. I can't have hypocrisy in my leaders. I love you too much. The higher the spiritual influence, the greater the cost. Let me just say, Grace Anglican Church, you have spiritual influence in our movement. I'm praying for your church. You've got to get this right. You got to stay close to Christ and live by grace and love each other because people are watching. My church is watching. Christ loves you enough as a church to say, look, I'm going to refine you. I'm a great God and your influence goes big. I'm going to refine you. I'm going to expose sin. So why? So when people come in here, they'll understand the gospel. You know what verse 14 of chapter 5 says? And the Lord added a multitude, multitudes of men and women were added to the church after this event. Why? Two reasons. One, people said, now I, or God said, now I can entrust this group of people with more people because they're real. They don't fake it. They're willing to love each other and put up with each other and bear with one another's sins and encourage each other and spur one another on to love and good deeds. You lost a great one in this church, I understand, this past week. 
Buzz Glade. And over and over again, the testimony was he was just real. He was who he was. Loved Christ, loved his family. You know, we have a church full of Buzz Glades. God just says, I'm going to add more because it just permeates this idea of being free in grace. But the second thing that happens when a church is honest and real about their sin and receives grace is, you know what? Other people come and say, I want into a church like that. I don't want to fake it anymore. I don't want to pretend I'm better than I am. It's exhausting. It brings judgment. And I never experienced the, the full power and grace of Christ. God brought judgment on this church. And there's all indication that Ananias and Sapphira were, Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They didn't lose their salvation. Hypocrisy is not the unpardonable sin, but he said, I've got to remove you from the fellowship. And in doing that, Revival broke out. So let me close with this. How do you overcome hypocrisy? How does the gospel transform a church and transform lives? Look at verse 11. It says this. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. When you're occupied with, great, with, with God's greatness and you realize what a great God he is, full of judgment and mercy, it produces fear, reverence, awe. You see, the root of hypocrisy is a love or a fear of people more than God. And as Oswald Chambers says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, including death. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. What does it mean to fear God, to honor and revere Him, to take into his, both His justice and His judgment and His grace and His mercy, to care more about what He thinks than about what others think? When you realize God is a refining fire towards those He loves, you come before Him with reverence, and honor, and humility, and a sense of awe. Of course, Jesus feared God perfectly. He didn't care about what men thought. He spoke the hard word. He offered truth and grace. And so how do we learn how to fear God? We run to Jesus. We pray for his faith, and his life, and his boldness, and his courage. We say, Lord, make me more like you. Make me willing to take a stand in my office or in my, ch in my uh, uh, classroom or in my home. Give me your grace and peace to live out my faith in everyday life. Richard Halverson, former chaplain of the Senate, put it this way. People who learn to fear Christ can face life and face death fearlessly. Because in fearing Christ... They've come to receive Christ and his grace. God loves his church, Grace Anglican, too much to let it destruct through, through hypocrisy. You have a leadership team that loves the Lord, that's humble, seeking Christ. They know they're hypocrites. They repent quickly. They fear God. They know what it means to lead a church they're growing. Hold them accountable, will you? Hold them accountable 
to honest, sincere, humble living and confession. For those of you who know Christ in this church, do you have secret sins? Do you fear yourselves or others' opinions more than you fear God? Come clean now before the judgment comes. Confess honestly. Receive grace. Run to Christ. And if you don't know Christ, it means you're fearing something else. He waits for, with open arms. He'll be clear and say, listen, someday your sins will be exposed for the whole universe to see. Just like Ananias and Sapphira were exposed in front of the whole church, every person's heart, mind, and thought will be exposed to the whole universe. Don't wait for that to happen and fall under his judgment. Refere the greatness and power and judgment of Christ on sin now. Run to him. Allow him to pay the price for your sin and receive his amazing grace. Come clean. Be real. Confess your sins. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, and now I see. Amen.